This morning I could call your attention to um, a scripture passage, but in as much as this is a New Year's forward-looking message, there are many texts that I'm going to be drawing upon this morning. Uh, and note particularly the title, uh, The Extraordinary Purpose of Ordinary Christians, because that's the direction in which we're looking this morning. So the particular text I have list, listed in the bulletin is just one of many that we're going to be considering. John 17:3 tells us, Jesus was praying this, he said, this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We'll say more about that verse and others as we look into our message this morning, but let's pray first. Our God and Father, we thank you for the privilege of uh, Scripture, hearing it already this morning in the richness and fullness of what your word declares to us. Uh, thinking, Lord, on uh, the wonderful uh, concepts, ideas, and truths that you've given to us as believers your great holiness, uh, that your glory is revealed in Christ, that we are those who live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, that we as Christians are joined with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, because your house is a house of prayer for all peoples. And now we come, Father, to consider what you would say to us through a number of scriptures uh, as we look forward to this coming year, a time in which people are often making resolutions. Help us to think what this might be like for us as Christians. This we pray this morning, asking your word and spirit to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. probably didn't set any record, but twice in the last couple of weeks I've seen the new Star Wars movie, <laughs> Return of the Jedi. <clears throat> the Return of the Last Jedi. Or just the last Jedi. I've got to see it a couple more times so I can really get the title correct. <laughs> but you know, when you go to a, a theater uh, and the current uh, previews are out, it's likely you're going to see some of the same previews that you saw before. And there was one that I saw twice that caught my attention. Uh, it's called uh, Ready Player One. Now, it's, it's supposed to come out at the end of March. I don't know if I'm recommending it to you, but what first caught my attention about this movie was the setup that you could obviously see within the trailer. Uh, the world's a global disaster. Uh, there's a global energy crisis because all of the petrochemicals have been depleted. Um, there's obviously a global stagnation of the economy consequent upon that, also because of global warming, all those kinds of issues. Um, and all of that is connected to uh, the global societal problems that emanate from this disastrous kind of situation. So that's the first thing, global mess. Uh, the second thing which caught my attention uh, was the narration by... Uh, the one who clearly is going to be the movie's hero. His name is Wade Watts. It's a narration that seems to reflect, at least it did to me, how many of our present younger generation, the so-called millennials, actually view or fear the future. The movie, movie takes place in 2045. 
It begins in Wade's hometown, Columbus, Ohio, which Wade tells us is a tiny corner of nowhere where there's nowhere else to go. This is because the world has nothing left. But there's one place where people can escape to. It's to a virtual world, an online computer-generated world that's called the Oasis. Wade refers to it as a, a whole virtual universe. It's a world created to have all sorts of possibilities. So Wade says, people come to the Oasis for all the things they can do. They stay because of all the things they can be. Then significantly, he says, it is the only place that feels like I mean anything. It's that statement which grabbed my attention. It seems to describe what many young people feel and fear. Namely, that it's impossible to have a fulfilling or meaningful life in this world as this world is today. People, young people feel like they're stuck in a place where there's nowhere else to go. It's only when they can escape into some other world that they feel like they have any meaning. Now, admittedly, that's what I got from a trailer. I haven't read the book. I haven't seen the movie. But at least the movie ad was targeting this common and almost pervasive feeling among the millennial generation that the world doesn't have much to offer in terms of a meaningful life. Reality is dismal, disappointing, and loaded with discontents. Now, beyond just the feeling of millennials, though, uh, this is really something of a symptom of the world that we live in, especially in the affluent Western world. People are filled with discontents of every sort so that the actual world fails to have any meaningful purpose about it at all for so many. So, it shouldn't be surprising that more and more people are investing more and more of their time in their virtual reality experiences. They become more invested in the digital and societal media world trying to create some kind of life that's meaningful to them, trying to address their discontents. We live in this world. As followers of Christ, we can be influenced by what is happening with the people around us. We are not immune from this kind of epidemic of discontents because we have our own discontents. Uh, we can find the reality that we actually live to be dismal and disappointing. We can lose sight of what our true purpose is in this life. Now, it's actually the reality of all these discontents which fosters and foments all of these New Year's resolutions. Right? All the resolutions to lose weight, Get a better job. Find a better spouse. Stop living at home with my parents. I read a millennial tweet 
New Year's resolution that said this, my resolution for this coming year is to find my parents better jobs so they can take better care of me. <laughs> A little tongue-in-cheek perhaps, but discontents. But are these New Year's resolutions any true kind of an answer? What's the biblical response? How should we deal with the discontents in our own life? That's the question. Biblically, I want to say that the response looks something like this. We address the discontents in life by resetting our sense of why we are here in this world in the first place. We address our discontents by looking at the extraordinary purpose of the ordinary Christian. Now, I use those terms, extraordinary and ordinary, because they're eminently biblical. It's not that the world has ever seen extraordinary Christians. You may think that's a strange statement. Actually, what the world has seen, what Christian history has seen, has been ordinary people that God has given and they have embraced in an incredible way their extraordinary purpose. But the purpose is essentially the same for all of us. The purpose is given to us in our catechism's first question and answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God. That's our bottom line purpose. That's our essential purpose. And that is the way in which ultimately we have to address all of the discontents of this life as Christians. The biblical response to reality, seemingly dismal, disappointing, and discontent is this. God has created you to live for Him. God has created you to glorify Him in your life. Everything, everything must be looked at from the perspective that your life belongs to God. He sent Christ in this world to save you. He has redeemed you for this ultimate purpose that you would live to the praise of His glory. That is how we reset our sense about life and that is how we fundamentally have to address reality that's dismal and disappointing and filled with many kinds of discontents. Now, this idea of glorifying God as our central and essential purpose uh, really is a complex idea as we find it broken down for us in Scripture. It's not like you can say we have one simple purpose to glorify God. Because what it means to glorify God, as is given to us in the Bible, really has at least three essential parts to it. Uh, we see a pattern again and again and again in Scripture that points to these three things being instrumental, constituent, definite aspects of what it means to glorify God. And that's what I want us to see this morning. That to glorify God, to live with this purpose, to recognize that it's not just a New Year's resolution, but it's a daily resolution to live for the sake of the God who loved us, created us, and redeemed us. We must do, we must focus our thoughts in three directions. We must know God. 
in Christ. We must serve God through Christ. And we must worship God in all that Christ has done for us. What does it mean for us to glorify God? It means to know him. It means to serve him. And it means to worship him. So, to begin with, the first part of our extraordinary purpose that God has given to us as Christians is to know God. That's what Jesus is saying in John chapter 17, in those first three verses. Jesus prays this way, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those that you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You know, we think about different definitions of what salvation is, and Jesus said salvation is in its essence, in its core, in its purpose, in its meaning. Salvation is knowing the true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. He has placed our salvation as being that which essentially is relational. It's essentially that of knowing the true God in Christ. And as Jesus said, when we know him, we know the Father. For as the writers of the Bible say, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And this is the purpose of our being saved, to know Christ. Now, that's the Apostle Paul's great emphasis in his own personal testimony. In Philippians chapter 3, he's describing the transformation of his life when, first of all, he was a Pharisaical Jew, really a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, as it touched upon the law, he was virtually blameless. And then he goes on to say in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, but whatever gain I had... I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and just simply count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based upon the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends upon faith. Now notice all of that is salvation language, justification by faith language. It's all about how we're saved by trusting Christ who gives us a righteousness we could never have by the law. But then the climax of this salvation discourse that Paul is giving out of his own personal testimony is this, that I may know him, meaning Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's great passion in life, the way he saw his great purpose in life, the way he saw the essence of his salvation in life, was that he would know Christ. But this is not just simply some New Testament understanding of God's outworking of salvation in history. Uh, we often think that the Old Testament is all wrapped up in, in covenantal obedience and the law and all of that. But there's an important statement in Jeremiah chapter 9 where God says, look, it's all about knowing him. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, God says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast 
in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness upon the earth. It's always been God's great purpose in saving us that we would come to know him. To have that relationship restored. To know the living and true God through his son, Jesus Christ. But it's also the priority that Jesus had for his own disciples. There's an interesting story in Luke's gospel that has different ways of bringing that point to bear that are rather significant. Luke chapter uh, 10, verses 38 to 42. Uh, Jesus is uh, bringing his disciples into the town where Mary and Martha live. And they're providing household uh, hospitality for 13 men. Now, Jesus is using that uh, place, the, the, the household of the house of Martha, in order to teach his disciples. When we get into the story, we read this. Jesus and the disciples were traveling along. Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Well, that welcoming him as all the disciples as well. And she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. If you know anything about Jewish culture, there's several things amiss about Mary's behavior. Uh, a woman didn't join the company of men. Moreover, to sit at Jesus' feet uh, carried a kind of cultural presumption with it. Verse 40, but Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Think about this. You know, one woman thought she was going to have her sister helping her. And she's preparing a meal for 13 hungry men. So she comes to Jesus and, he sa and says to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? And there must have been some expression on Jesus' face that indicated, yes, he was concerned about this, because the response is, then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to Martha, 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 you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, those words are profound because of the cultural setting. Look at what the lesson of this passage is. Jesus is saying, contrary to the culture of the day, it's more important for this Jewish woman to be sitting at my feet, attentive in my presence, listening to me, coming to know me, than it is for her to get up, help her sister, to prepare a great meal for the rest of us. If that was true for a Jewish woman in that context and setting, how much more powerful the lesson would be to the disciples who were in training to become apostles. Because Jesus was saying to them, it is of greater importance that you, my disciples, my apostles, be attentive in my presence than it is to be actively involved in my service. There's a priority here that Jesus is expressing.
which really leads to a gentle truth for all of us Christians. Most of us have Martha temperaments. To the neglect of the role that Mary played. We find it easier to be doing something for Jesus than it is to actually sit in the presence of Jesus. And Christ has said to us through the story, it is more necessary that you are attentive in my presence than it is for you to be active in my service. They're not opposed. Jesus isn't discounting action in his service or activity in his service. But he's saying this. If you choose a model for the Christian life, Mary or Martha, you better choose Mary. If you're going to follow anyone in terms of an example of what it means to be the kind of Christian you need to be, what kind of purpose you need to live, what your priorities need to be, you better choose Mary. It is more vital for us to know Christ and to come to know him deeply than it is for us to be actively involved in his service. Now, our lives are a mess of discontents until we come to know Jesus more and more deeply. It's part of the truth of what Scripture has to say, what the Gospel presents to us. Our lives are a mess of discontents unless we know Jesus more and more deeply. Now, the second aspect of the extraordinary purpose that God has given to us is, in fact, to serve God, to serve Christ. So let's understand, this is not in opposition to the first priority to know Christ, but it doesn't subtract from this aspect of our purpose. Rather, knowing Christ must precede serving Christ. Jesus himself said so, John 15, verse 5, apart from me you can do nothing. And that apart from me was abiding in him, knowing him, was the absolute essential basis for really doing anything for Christ. Jesus expects us to serve him, but Jesus expects us to serve him out of knowing him. But this, this aspect of serving Christ is stated so well in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 5. The paradigm, the model, the imperative is there. Paul says, have this mind in you which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, that's the passage that introduces the incarnation of Christ. That Jesus, existing in the form of God, doesn't hold on to his, doesn't hold on to his status as God, but is willing to empty himself by becoming a servant, the incarnation. And in obedience as a servant, he's obedient to the point of death. Now, Paul is presenting that as the model, uh, the paradigm, the example for what it means to serve Christ. The phrase, have this mind, in the Greek is one word. It's an imperative. But it means to think a particular way. It means to think thoughtfully toward a particular purpose. So have this particular purpose in mind which was in Christ which was to be a servant 
The whole point of Jesus doing this was he was behaving, acting, adopting, taking the humble route of being a servant for the sake of our salvation. And so Paul is saying, this is your purpose too. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Now, what does this look like? It's interesting that in the New Testament, there are anywhere from seven to ten different words that can be translated as service. Uh, But three particular word groups show up again and again with reference to service that looks like worship or worship kinds of service, uh, service that looks like uh, ministry care toward others, and service that looks like specifically uh, the kind of service that a servant gives to a master. So, very quickly. There's service that counts as worship. The Apostle Paul refers to this in the beginning of the book of Romans, uh, when he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness that I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Now, the word serve there is a particular word that carries with it uh, temple worship connotations. Uh, It was a word that was used of the priests in the temple. In other words, what Paul is saying is is that my gospel witness in the world, my gospel witness to you, has this kind of of Old Testament worshipful, sacred religious character. He makes that very clear toward the end of Romans in chapter 15 when he puts it this way, verses 15 and 16. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God. Then verse 16 he says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And here are the key words. In the priestly service of the gospel, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul saw his gospel work among the Gentiles, his church planting among the Gentiles, as that which carried with it this kind of sacred character, It was a sacred service. It was a religious service. It was something that was every bit as sacred and holy as that which the Old Testament priests did when they did the temple worship and sacrifice. So we need to think about that. When we have the privilege of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who doesn't know Jesus, the New Testament would look at that as sacred ministry, sacred service. It's the kind of thing that is privileged for us to be able to partake of that kind of kind of service. Second category is the category of ministry where the idea of ministry brings about acts of caring, uh, acts of concrete help to others. Uh, the Greek word that describes this is the word diakonia. Uh, Paul uses this term also in the last next to the last chapter of Romans. In verses 30 and 31, he's describing to the Romans, he's writing to them, he's asking for their prayer support because he is on his journey from from Greece to Jerusalem. And he knows when he gets to Jerusalem, it's going to be a difficult situation for him because he has lots of enemies there. Now, what did he collect in northern and southern Greece? He collected up a huge offering for the sake of the Jewish ones who were poor, Jewish Christians, Jewish believers, because of what was going on in, in, in Judea at that time. So he's carrying this offering with him, and this is what he basically says to them. I appeal to you, brothers, 
by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in prayer to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service, my diakonia for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And again and again, we find in the New Testament that the diakonia service, that kind of service, always involves concrete helps of mercy and aid to those who are in some kind of need. That is so significant that the apostles established an ordained office in the New Testament church in Acts chapter 6, which is specifically titled the office of the deacon, those who are ordained and called by God specifically to lead the church in acts of mercy and kindness and alleviation of suffering in this regard. Service to Christ, that's diakonia. And then there's a third aspect as well. This kind of service carries the basic idea of obedience to a master. Um, and this is how we should look at our service to Christ. In Colossians 3, 24, the apostle puts it this way. He's just been talking about Christians who were slaves and giving proper obedience to their masters. And he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, that particular word for service is both the noun word and then the verb word. It's always connected to the idea of being a bondservant or being a slave. The idea that you are under authority. The idea that someone is, is, the work that you're doing is work because there is a master who is commanding this kind of work. And that's why Paul would subsume all of our service uh, as under the command of Christ. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. But then it's interesting. When we look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, the apostle Paul will use that same word, in this way, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. It's that do loss word. Serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is to say, believer, child of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. You are under the authority of Christ. You are a bond servant to Christ. Serve him. Serve one another. And fulfill the requirements of the law. Then the third aspect. Now we're down to the last point. Breathe a sigh of relief. We're to the last point. John chapter 4. Uh, this is the story of the encounter between the woman at the well and Jesus. And when they're talking, and, and Jesus has all this prophetic insight into her life, of course, the subject of worship comes up. Jesus says this, chapter 4, beginning of verse 22, to the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The key idea that Jesus is stating is this. 
The Father, in connection with salvation, the Father is seeking those who will worship Him. Not according to their own predilections and desires, but those who will worship Him in accordance with spirit and truth. In accordance with the the actual working of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and sanctification, and in accordance with what the Scriptures declare with respect to how we should worship God. The extraordinary purpose that God has given to us as believers is that we should worship Him. Now, that's not just some isolated statement. It's really a very dominant biblical theme. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. That's worship. Proclaiming the excellencies of the God who has sovereignly called us out of darkness into his light. What's interesting there is Peter is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And the very words that he uses when he says royal priesthood and holy nation are identical to what we find in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Identical. In that passage in the Old Testament, God says to his people Israel, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. The Greek phrase, Greek translation of the Hebrew there means royal priesthood and a holy nation. God's people have always been characterized as those who've been called out of darkness into light that they might be able to proclaim his excellencies. And so we find in the book of Revelation two very significant passages in which this connection is demonstrated between the saving work of Christ and our calling to be that royal priesthood, those priests who will worship God. So in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 5, the words come, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then in chapter 5, which speaks about the Lamb who's slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And with your blood you did purchase for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. The same idea repeated often. God has saved us to worship Him. The practical outworking we find in what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then he goes on to say, because that is so, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Now, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that it is our purpose in view of the mercies that God has given to us in salvation to live with one great and grand 
purpose, which is the purpose of worship. To give ourselves always, completely, body and soul, over to the Lord. And to look at life from the perspective we have been called by God to know Christ and to serve Christ and to worship Christ. Nothing is as countercultural to the patterns of this world than to be those who would live for the sake of giving God glory. So we put this all together, beginning of a new year, against the reality of the discontents that the world can bring us. When we live for the here and now, when our purposes in life are focused on this life, we will only see the world as dismal and disappointing. We will constantly suffer many discontents. Listen, God in his great mercy does not want a fallen world to find satisfaction. He would want every human being to experience the fallen world as Solomon did. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. All things are full of weariness. The eye is not full of seeing. The ear is not filled with hearing. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. All is vanity, a striving after wind. There is nothing to be gained under the sun. God would want the entire fallen world to experience the discontents which Solomon experienced when he considered the world apart from God. Life that does not have Christ at its center is vanity. This is the source of the world's discontents. What fallen people pursue as their purposes cannot satisfy human longings when God has placed eternity in their hearts. The heart craves for something so much more. And that something is what God has given to us in our salvation. An extraordinary purpose to address the discontents of life. We're called to glorify God, to know Christ, to serve Christ, to worship Christ. Life has little in the way of discontent when we're able to find our purpose and satisfaction in Him. Let's pray. Father, help us. We pray to be those who can reset consistently, constantly, the purpose you've given to us to glorify you and through glorifying you to enjoy you and even this world. In Jesus' name, amen.